Hello everyone. Just a quick content warning. This episode of the Ball Film Podcast briefly discusses sexual assault when discussing the storylines to the movies The Last Duel and Anatomy of a Murder. Hello everyone and welcome back to the new episode of the Ball Film Podcast. Back for 2022, back after a little absence, we are here with Deputy Editors Dom Thornton and Armas Kavanagh and we are discussing our favourite films that we've seen over the Christmas break and we're going to give a brief list of our favourite films of 2021. Now, you'll know Dom from our episodes together discussing best films of the decade, uh, episode introducing Freshers to Warwick University, but you might not know Almaz, the new deputy editor. So Almaz, would you like to say hello? Yes. Um, so I work with Frank and Dom on the ball, and I'm a second year uh, film student at Warwick. And that's me. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say. There you go. That's Almaz. <laughs> <laughs> Well then, films that we've watched over the Christmas break. Now I have quite a big list. I've been looking over my letterboxed um, diary, basically, just to remind myself of stuff that I've seen. Uh, and I thought the way we could proceed is maybe going one at a time. We each just talk about a film we've seen and just see how it goes. Um, Dom, would you like to kick us off with something that you've seen? Uh, yeah, sure. So I didn't really watch any Christmas films. The ones I did were terrible. Surviving Christmas, Ben Affleck goes to like his old childhood home where James Gardafini now lives and now he wants him to be his dad over Christmas. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's garbage. Um, though Hootsuka Proxy, which sort of works as a Christmas film, it's like a, it's the week between Christmas and New Year's. Coen Brothers, that's really good. Uh, Tim Robbins invents the hula hoop. And basically the film suggests that everything, every great invention is a circle. Uh, it's, it's, it's really good. Um, though I kind of started the Christmas break as a kind of break from work with um, Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch, which is a film that um, a lot of people don't like, but I've got to say, sorry to be that guy, but it, it's, it's really good. It's really great. Um, it plays really interestingly with ideas of fantasy. The film itself is kind of Zack Snyder because he made it just before he made Man of Steel. And it kind of feels like someone just before getting, you know, like getting the biggest job they ever had which they know will be like creatively controlled by others they just go crazy with the budget and make the exact film they want to make um and that's kind of what he did yeah so emily browning she basically accidentally kills her sister to get sent into like a mental hospital um and then kind of enters the fantasy of she's in like working in a brothel and then she teams up with all the other girls there to kind of escape um and the way it kind of uses fantasy she goes into kind of these fantasy sequences where she has to get these items to escape, but she enters kind of these battlegrounds to find these items to then escape. Um, but the film, the way the film kind of blends these fantasy elements is really interesting. I think Snyder, to his credit, is one of the few filmmakers working in this scope, working in this level of blockbusters that is interested in the digital combining with the celluloid, because he shoots film, like all his big movies are shot on, on film quite interestingly. Um, and the way this blends kind of the digital kind of the effects with it is really quite interesting and a really kind of interesting way of blending those two that I don't tend to see that often. It's complete nonsense. Like the film is utterly nonsense. And I know a lot of people hate it because it's nonsense and I can't kind of disagree with that. Uh, it doesn't really make a lick of sense. It's mainly just cool imagery. And that's enough for me, especially when it's like Cider has such a keen eye for it. The slow motion is great. The needle drops are really dumb and stupid, but that fits and it's great. There's a great Bjork needle drop of where her first kind of fantasy sequence, which in, in 
her mind in the first stage of her mind because it goes from like hospital to her mind in the brothel to her mind in these big action sequences her in the brothel sequence she's basically doing a dance for like Oscar Isaac's character who like owns the place and then he um and then she dances into this battle scene with like these huge samurai statues that she has to fight three of them and when she takes out the second one which she does by jumping on top of it shooting it in the eye and then it crumbles Bjork's army of mean needle drops as she like slow motion swaggers down some steps to pick up a, a sword and it's I, I just applauded like it, it's it's ridiculous and over the top and stupid but it's really cool and I kind of thought that's all you need especially when it looks as spectacular as it does um yeah I really loved it and I <laughs> it's, it's very probably on brand for me to to love it um even though everyone hates it but yeah, it's pure kind of cinematic escapism. And I've read some interesting pieces about it. Um, it's a film that some people have kind of claimed to be kind of misogynistic and I've read those essays and they make sense to me. And then I've also on the other side read these fascinating essays that discuss it as a film that takes down kind of this, the cultures, how misogynistic the culture is and how kind of, you know, nerdy stuff kind of hinges on this misogyny. And the film is a takedown of that, which is fascinating, which articulates it much better than I ever could. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting film and I really liked it. Um, the extended cut as well has a great scene where Oscar Isaac performs uh, Love is the Drug by Roxy Music on stage, which is a delight if you if you like Oscar Isaac, which I do. So yeah, Sucker Punch. I I heard everyone hates it and I, I love it. So, so there we go. Nice. I must confess, my knowledge of it is confined to the extended version of Army of Me that's used in it um, as a Bjork fan throughout my teenage years and still now. That is my knowledge of Sucker Punch is that album cover because on Apple yeah. Music, that is what I'm listening to, that extended version of Army of Me. I'm really glad you liked it. Yeah, yeah, because my John C, you know John C, our friend John C, um, one of my housemates and course mates, he, and mates in general, um, <laughs> he saw it, he put it on um, and I fell asleep during it. And he was like, oh no, you're going to love this Dom. And then one of the friends said it was really bad. And then I finally got around to it like a year after the fact. And, and he was right, I did love it. Very Domcore, I think. <laughs> would be the term <laughs> have you ever seen it almost i haven't um i've heard it's quite bad though so i haven't been in like a rush to see it um but i've other films from that director did he did he did army of the dead right yeah yeah i saw that and oh, i don't know <laughs> see i, I haven't know. seen that one yeah, I've heard it was bad though. Yeah, that film was really bad. <laughs> and everything looked like a cutaway scene from a video game, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like everything was blurred background. All the characters look like archetypal video game characters. And it's so stupid. But in a way, when you're with a group of people and you just want something to watch, it's like perfect for that kind of scenario. But I'll have to watch Sucker Punch. I think it's on my Netflix list. I just haven't been in a rush to see it, but now I want to see it because you loved it so much. <laughs> nice. Well, there you go. There's Sucker Punch. I know that my dad likes it. So um, if that means anything to anyone, uh, there's a there's a glowing recommendation. Um, Olmaz, would you like to talk about a movie that you've seen over the Christmas break? Um, so before I left my flat in Leamington, I saw Little Women with one of my flatmates and that was just amazing. It was the uh, Greta Gerwig adaptation and I'd never seen any adaptations before. I'd never read the book and it was kind of like, you have a background knowledge of 
what the story is, but I never knew the full extent of it. And I just thought it was brilliant. It's so beautiful and the costume and the look of the film, everything about it was great. And uh, controversially, I think I love Amy the best. I think her name's Amy, the one who uh, burns Joe's script. Is that right? That is Amy, yeah? Yeah, Florence Pugh, right? um, What's that? Is it Florence Pugh's character? Yeah, Florence Pugh's character. Because everyone hates that girl. But maybe it's just because Florence Pugh is playing her that I love it. But yeah, I just, I thought it was great. (laughs) I feel like I'm not giving that much of an analysis of it, but it was just like the perfect way to... uh, kind of end the term especially because the person I watched it with my flatmate loves the film so it was just a nice way to end everything and say goodbye before we see each other in January. It's a good slightly alternative Christmas movie as well given that um, it's got a lot of stuff set around Christmas. Yeah definitely I think if I ever uh, rewrite that article of alternative Christmas films maybe next (laughs) year I'll have to add it in. That was the film that introduced me to uh, Timothy Chalamet as well. That was the first Timothy Chalamet film I saw. That was late in his career then. I know, I know. I might, wow, I might have you were seen... late onto the Timothy train. I was very late on the Timothy train. I might have seen something with him in before, but I think that was the first film I was conscious of like who he, who he properly was, because that was when everyone fancied him. It was that kind of era of Chalamet. Um, I really like Chris Cooper in it. Chris Cooper's one of those actors that just pops up occasionally. American Beauty and uh, Lone Star, John Sales movie, stuff like that. And he's brilliant in Little Women as the sort of character that everyone thinks is going to be the miserly, cruel old man. But it's just really, really sweet. I like that. I burst into tears when Bob Odenkirk shows up. Oh, yeah. When when the dad shows up, I'm just, I'm gone. I floods of tears. How do we feel about um, Little Women versus Lady Bird as, a, as the two Gerwig movies? Oh, I do love Lady Bird, I have to say. I remember seeing it in the student cinema at the start of like first year and it was like perfect. <laughs> I was kind of in that mentality of like everything's changing. And uh, I don't know, I think Little Women was made after Lady Bird, right? Yeah. It, it does feel more developed, if that makes sense. I don't know, what do you two think of it? Oh, it's a tough one. I really like both. Um, I'm not sure. I think she's two for two in terms of making great films, I feel. I mean, I, I'd probably more like to rewatch Little Women, so I'd probably say Little Women I prefer, probably. Yeah, I, I think I definitely prefer Little Women. Um, I think it's interesting that it's an adaptation of the story that focuses more on the Saoirse Ronan character. Um, forgive me for not remembering the names of the characters that well. But I know that in Little Women, there's the character that's dying. And a lot of the story, a lot of the adaptations focus on the sadness of this character's death. But Gerwig doesn't focus on that. And I know that some reviews were saying, well, you know, every single review has just seen it as quite a sad story with a bit of happiness at the end. And Gerwig wants to focus on it as more of an empowering, you know, story for women and all this kind of stuff, which I think is interesting. Quite an interesting approach to adapting the story. So, yeah, I like Little Women. Yeah, I think that's definitely true as well um, with understanding the character of Amy. I remember Gre- uh, reading an article where uh, it was explaining how Greta Gerwig wanted to give that character more depth rather than just being like the horrible sister who makes everyone's life a misery. She has like reason for the things that she does and she's just a woman of her time. So 
Um, you might judge someone for superficially wanting to marry rich or, you know, uh, wanting things to bet themselves. But uh, you have to understand that during that time, that was like a huge part of how to survive as a woman. And that scene where uh, it's Florence Pugh explaining to Timothy Chalamet, like this is an economic proposition. I think that was something Greta Gerwig deliberately put in there to like explain to a modern audience that this is the context of the time and uh, that it's just an important aspect. It wasn't just women, I don't know, <laughs> flurrying about in pretty dresses. There was like a deeper meaning to it. I'm rambling a bit, but yeah, I, I think it just uh, was sensitive to the women of the time and didn't, and like understood them and didn't judge them too harshly because they were restricted and I think it was kind of nice seeing that in a film. Brilliant. Well, there you go, Little Women. I also think it's um, Emma Watson's best performance in anything. I forgot she was in it. Um, but <laughs> no, you're probably right. I forget she's in everything. Like, every time. I'm like, oh, yeah, Emma Watson's in it. Remember Noah? She was in that. Um, oh, yeah. No, you're probably right. Yeah, she is good in it. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. Oh, maybe everyone else overshadows her. That's why I forget she's in it, because everyone else is <laughs> terrific in it. But no, she is good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, there's Little Women. Now, earlier, Dom mentioned Oscar Isaac acting in Sucker Punch. And a film that Dom and I actually saw together um, just before we broke up for Christmas was The Card Counter, which I absolutely loved. Fantastic Paul Schrader movie. And watching that made me want to seek out other films that he'd made recently. And the one that was compared to The Card Counter the most in reviews of the film and in media about the film was First Reformed. So that was the first film I watched over the Christmas break. And I absolutely loved it. The second it begins, you know you're in for an incredible time. It starts with this really long tracking shot going up to this church, the First Reformed Church, where most of the film's action is going to take place. You follow Pastor Ernst Toller, played by uh, Ethan Hawke, who is absolutely incredible here. Dom, uh, you've talked about this film at length already um, when we did our episode about our favourite films of the 21st century. And in that, you said that Ethan Hawke wasn't nominated for an Oscar that year and it went to Rami Malek in Bohemian yeah. Rhapsody, which is just upsetting. Um, I know that you love this movie as well, Dom. Uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's incredible. Every moment is brilliant. The basic plot is that he's playing this priest who is very lonely. He's suffering from cancer. He's in love with a woman who is one of his parishioners. Um, he meets this woman's husband, who is an environmental activist, who is kind of being drawn towards eco-terrorism. And after something quite traumatizing happens, Ernst Toller becomes radicalized himself. He becomes drawn towards eco-terrorism. He becomes incredibly angry at this horrible, evil capitalist overlord that's destroying the planet, that's connected with the church financially. Um, and it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper into this incredibly dark descent into these sort of visions of violence and lust it's a very sort of big meaningful meaty film about loneliness and religion and masculinity and i absolutely loved it it's a fantastic drama it's really politically fierce in a way that not a lot of movies are i think a lot of movies that come out now if they have a political message it feels very hashtag twittery it, it's very sort of slap on a bit of representation maybe or a bit of diversity and that'll be a political message when you know it just feels a bit corporate but First Reformed felt like a real sort of scream of anguish from a very passionately political person. And it was a fantastic movie. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, glad you enjoyed it, especially after Card Counter. Um, really because the Card Counter was so good, I was, I was worried you'd see it and then not like it as much as the Card Counter. But how did you find them 
Which, which one's better? Um, it's tough because I watched the obviously we watched the card counter together in a cinema as yeah. an experience watching a you know a Schrader Bresson homage kind of movie in a cinema. It doesn't really compare in terms of the actual <laughs> yeah. viewing experience one to the other. The other one was just on a TV at home. But I think First Reformed is probably the better movie. Um, I think it's sort of put together a bit better. It's a bit more satisfying. I think if I was going to say anything about it, it's that the one thing with Card Counter that I think maybe makes me a little less fond of it than uh, First Reformed is the relationship between Oscar Isaac's character, William Tell, and the kid that he's with, Kirk. I think that is good and it works and it's thematically strong, but there's a lot of kind of road trippy sequences, which are fine, but not quite as powerful and strong and unique maybe as some of the stuff in First Reformed. Um, Yeah, and I think First Reformed just felt that bit more fierce and stark, maybe. That's why I liked it more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do love how, I'm glad you mentioned the opening shot because the the camera only moves twice in First Reformed and it's that opening push in and the final rotation shot, which made me dizzy when I first saw it. Just that ending is just, you're so in his head that when the finale happens, I just, I, I was dizzy. It's uh, it's so good. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. I absolutely loved it. Um, weirdly, uh, Obsession, a Brian De Palma movie that Paul Schrader wrote, which I watched, I think, just after First Reformed. I rewatched it just after First Reformed. They have the same opening shot. It's a slow pan to a church, weirdly. Yeah. Um, so that's what Paul Schrader's into. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the Magical Mystery Tour sequence is really quite something as well uh, in First Reformed. When you get to that bit, it totally changes the entire sort of cinema- cinematic logic that the film has built up to that point. And it's, yeah. it's really quite something. Have you seen um, The Card Counter or First Reformed, Almas? I haven't. Um, and I kind of want to now after that, because you both seem to really love it. But when you said magical mystery tour sequence it made me remember i need to see that new um get back film i think it's on disney plus i don't know if either of you have seen it i haven't yet but i've heard it's really good i've watched the first episode it's just the like three hours each so it's getting to the point because i'm watching it with my dad so it's just finding the three hour time to watch each episode but it's episodes it's episodic yeah um but yeah they're three hours each but the first part flies by I, i really loved it there's just a great sequence where george harrison discusses something you watched on telly last night and it's just great to see the Beatles discussing what was on tv like it's just because the Beatles are obviously so huge and so famous and you know their genius is is noted it's weird to just see them hanging out like they're you know 25 year olds which which they were so it's it's really good it's really cool okay I'll have to see it because I am quite a big fan of George Harrison especially so I think you're right. They've been like so mythologized in a way. Yeah. You forget they're literally just all people from Liverpool who just happen to make it big. And yeah. They're just real people. So, yeah, I'll have to see it. Yeah. I need to see it as well. I haven't seen it yet. I don't have Disney Plus, so I'm going to struggle uh, to see it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I am very intrigued by it. I know that it's it's the whole film is reassembled from the sort of outtakes of uh, is it the Let It Be movie that was made in the 70s or something. Yeah, they were making a document of like their final album recording leading up to a live show that we're going to do. And this is like the footage of that because there's there's more audio recorded than there is like video footage. So sometimes there's just audio over the top of just random footage, but it, it works like seamlessly. It's not strange to watch at all. It works really nicely and the footage lines up really well with what they're discussing a lot of the time. It's just it's just really cool to see them just hang out. And when um, 
Paul comes up with get back just on the fly. It's just like, oh wow, how how does he do that? Just randomly just playing guitar comes up with get back. It's it's really good. <laughs> Brilliant. I can't wait to see the next two episodes. Well, there you go. There's get back. Um, Dom, would you like to tell us about another film that you've seen over the Christmas period? Uh yeah, I a new release, I guess. Well, not now, it came out early December, but um Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. Um, which you'll know I'm a big fan of the other Resident Evil films like Paul Anderson. This is a reboot of the franchise, which I was kind of worried about, especially because when it was announced, everyone on the internet was like, yeah, yeah, they can make it properly this time, whatever that means. Because obviously Anderson's films weren't particularly faithful to the games, at least in terms of plot or characters or whatever, because Miliovich's character Alice was made up for the, for the films. Um, but this is more faithful to the games. And then it came out and everyone slagged it off and said it was really bad. So I was like, well, you can't please anyone. This is why you don't be faithful to anything. Um, but I thought I'd, I'd give it a go. It's like an hour 40, it's quite short. It's, you know, it's not bad, it's, it's fine. Um, I don't get the complaints. It's not better than anything Anderson did, but it's, it's a fun Carpenter-esque B-movie. It's full of, you know, widescreen compositions that go really slow and pan around corners and, the emphasis on the town is really nice. It reminded me of the fog. The Neil drops are really good. It's, it's set in the late nineties. Um, the Neil drops are so of that era, um, which some people have said is annoying, but it's the, the Neil drop of Crush when like this tanker explodes and crashes into the police station. It's just a standout moment for me. Um, there's a great moment in like the woods when like it's a long take and the camera slowly pans between the characters and between what they're searching in this police car and then it pans back. And it's really simple, but it's really effective. And it's, I was quite surprised that this film was having that, especially considering everyone was complaining about it. There's a great sequence that there's like a horde of zombies attack inside the mansion. And it's lit solely by like the cigarette, uh, like the cigarette lighter. And it's really impressive. It cuts to a POV shot and it's just got this tiny light in the corner that's lighting the entire frame. And it, it, it's really effective and really quite special. Anytime it tries to do plot, it doesn't work. It falls apart. It's adapting two games, apparently. I'm not familiar with the game, so I'm not too sure, but apparently it's adapting the first two games, which means it, it sort of feels like there's too much going on, but also there doesn't really seem to be a plot anyway. It's characters going from one place to the next, if you ever played games, so the plot kind of is non-existent, and yet it's trying to do two game plots at the same time, meaning it's kind of full, even though there's not really anything happening. Um, but no, it, I mean, it's, it's fine. It's, it's a nice genre exercise, which I like. Um, and Roberts is, is, he knows what he's doing. And it's, a, it's sort of a nice throwback to kind of 80s stuff. And it's better than, I'd rather watch that than Stranger Things. That's all I'm saying in terms of 80s inspiration. So yeah, it's, it's fine. It's not worth anyone getting upset over. Though people on the internet like to get upset over this sort of thing. But no, it's good. I'd, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. It's, it's, it's good. That's my review. Brilliant. Well, um, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, Dom often finds things to appreciate and enjoy in media that is often very heavily criticized. So it's always good to hear perspectives like that. I haven't seen it. I mean, it's a new release, so obviously it's kind of difficult to watch it. But again, just looking at the poster, I'm like, ah, you know, that's not going to be for me. I like I like the games. Um, yeah. I haven't seen any of the Paul W.S. Anderson films yet. Uh, I'm sure I will soon, though, um, given Dom's love of them. But <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's not one I've seen, so I can't really comment, but I'm really glad you liked it. And the needle drops do sound good. That That's, you know, a good needle drop will get me invested in a movie. Um, Almas, have you seen it? I haven't. And I'm 
I, I never really lean towards those types of films, so I don't know if I'm likely to, but um, yeah, I can't even think of anything I've seen that's similar to it. I don't think I've seen many adaptations of games. Effie from Skins is in it, and I said after watching Crawl that she should be put in everything, so I'm, I'm glad Holly was listening to me, because um, she's terrific in it as Claire Redfield, so she's really good. I can't remember her full name, but Effie from Skins. Is it really good? Kaya Stodolario, I think it is. That's it. Yeah, that's that's her. Yeah, she's terrific in it. Um, and she should be in more genre. Like she could have her own nice little industry going on here with like genre movies because she was great in Cruel. If you saw that alligator film, which was actually really good. <laughs> I do love that with Skins. It's like the actors that show kind of gave us. It's like Dev Patel, uh, Nicholas Holt, Hannah Murray, uh, Kaya Stodolario, and to us it's just yeah the, you know that person from Skins uh, Cassie from Skins I'm, I'm always going to think of Hannah Murray as Cassie from Skins she was in Game of Thrones and she's Cassie from Skins to me is it Daniel Kaluuya he started off in Skins as well I swear and to me I just keep on thinking oh it's posh Kenneth from Skins <laughs> even though he's like a major actor now and yeah. like get out and stuff so I kind of like the fact that they've kind of brought relevance to so many British actors especially like uh, a diverse range of actors, like Dev Patel is huge now and I'm kind of proud of them in a way. I'm kind <laughs> of, uh, yeah, I kind of want to protect them and be like, yeah, you deserve everything you've got. <laughs> Absolutely. I think one of the things that Skins got right was that they did, I think, very open casting. I think a lot of shows have quite an elitist casting sort of, uh, you know, method or whatever it is. But Skins is very open with it and, you know, it's produced a lot of very good talent. So there you go. Nice one, Skins. Uh, Almaz, is there another movie that you've seen over the Christmas period you'd like to talk about? Yes. There's two I'm debating talking about right now. Starsky and Hutch and Howl's Moving Castle. So um, Starsky and Hutch, I remember seeing it on Netflix and I just got home after taking... A billion trains <laughs> and I just wanted something easy and the title stood out to me because it's mentioned in like a biggie song and uh my dad said oh that, that was a tv show everyone loved it everyone tuned in to see it um so we put it on and it's just so naff <laughs> it's it's not anything particularly great it's just another like Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson comedy um uh, it's kind of got that dynamic that you see in loads of films about cops where it's like the the easy laid-back cop who doesn't care about the rules and then the one who's really really stuck to, to them and then with that dynamic they teach each other and develop as a duo but um, yeah it just didn't uh, strike me as anything great but it was like easy if you wanted something to wash over you um, the female characters in it are so bad, but almost in a way that's kind of laughable because it's, it's like they're blow up dolls almost and everything they do is so ridiculous. There's a scene where a cheerleader, her ex-boyfriend has been murdered and when she's being investigated in the changing room, like locker room, she begins to get completely naked in front of the cops and continues to answer their questions. And it's it's almost like so over the top that you can forgive it in a way. Uh, so I'm kind of like debating how I feel about the representation of women because it was so 
ridiculous that it's kind of no one can believe that's the real person if that makes sense and the other film I wanted to mention was Howl's Moving Castle only because um with a lot of Japanese animation films that I'd seen previously I don't know whether it was like a culture difference but I never found myself relating to them as much um I thought they were beautiful films but uh something wasn't quite connecting but with Howl's Moving Castle just beautiful everything about it was perfect um and I can't even describe what it was it just had this like unique quality that I think a lot of people connected with and it's so it's like escapism and it's it's like a fantasy world you can enter in and every shot was so amazing it looked like a painting like this vast beautiful artwork so yeah just beautiful so I saw a really bad film and a really amazing film those are the two I wanted to mention brilliant um Starsky and Hutch I haven't seen it I know that Snoop Dogg plays Huggy Bear in it was that good yeah (laughs) I do love him so I kind of that was another point for the film is that it featured him but um yeah he, he kind of does the same thing in a lot of films where he's just the cool guy who wears a fur coat but um yeah, I think you'd have to see it to kind of like make a judgment on it. Have you seen Starsky and Hutch, Dom? I have, yeah, and it, it's pretty bad. Though it is still Todd Phillips's best film, um, <laughs> which says a lot. I think I, I could never tell. I'm watching it and I could never tell whether it was like, because it's obviously a homage in the 70s show, but I couldn't tell whether it was like parodying it or not. I haven't seen it in a while, but it's not like we're talking like 21 Jump Street, for instance, is so obviously this Titan comedy where it's sort of parodying the tv show whereas Dusky and Hutch, like, i never tell whether it was doing it like ironically or not it's it's weird it's yeah the yeah. tone is definitely kind of it's weird tonally. yeah that's why i think having someone who had seen the show they were kind of confused by the film and they didn't find it sincere in the yeah. way that maybe 21 jump street is yeah the hell's moving castle is is good um so that, <laughs> that's good though it's probably not like my least favorite Ghibli, I think. That's controversial, I know, because I've had this discussion with a lot of people, but I'm always like, that's always like lower down for me, weirdly, because I know loads of people absolutely think it's one of their best. Um, but yeah, because yeah. for me, it's like the best one I've I've seen out of the lot. So, right. what's your favorite one? Um, either Whisper of the Heart or My Neighbor Totoro, which I know is kind of a basic answer, but those two I absolutely adore. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I remember watching Howl's Moving Castle when I was about like seven. I think that was the last time I saw it. I remember absolutely loving it then. I remember my parents hated it because it's really, really long. And they'd be like, oh, no, don't watch that again. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, Studio Ghibli, I kind of agree with Dom. Um, just because I haven't seen it in a really long time, I guess it's kind of mid-tier Ghibli for me, which is still incredible because all, oh, yeah. <laughs> all of their movies are really good. Um but like my faves have always been Castle in the Sky and Kiki's Delivery Service. Those are the my two faves. Um, if anyone hasn't seen the American Disney dub of Kiki's Delivery Service, on one level, it's kind of like an absolute butchering of a classic. On another level, you've got Phil Hartman as a talking cat in it. So it is the greatest Studio Ghibli film. <laughs> Phil Hartman voiced Lionel Hutz and Troy McClure in The Simpsons. The man can do no wrong, like, you know. And um, Kirsten Dunst is geeky, and Anna Paquin plays the lead in um, 
Castle in the Sky. So there you go. Great casting. I always find it weird how the American dub and the people in it never like did promotion for it. Yeah. I always found that weird. Like, why wouldn't you want to promote that you're in a Studio Ghibli film? I don't know. But I always found that bizarre when, because like, they always have incredible casts. Like when you, they announce who's in it, you're like, oh, wow, they've got, you know, huge A-listers and yet they never do any promotion, which is strange. Unless it's like a rights thing, I don't know. Yeah, could be. Could well be. And there you go. Howl's Moving Castle and Starsky and Hutch. Dom, am I right in thinking Michael Mann started his career writing scripts for Starsky and Hutch? Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. He wrote a few episodes, yeah. Um, I haven't seen them, but I can probably track them down, probably. <laughs> Look up uh, Michael Mann facts on Twitter, probably. Yeah, he might get me a copy, yeah. <laughs> So there you go, Starsky and Hutch and Howl's Moving Castle. Now, for the next film that I saw that I figured would be good to talk about, uh, it's a Japanese movie from the 80s. It's a Christmas film. It has an electro-synth score. It's about gay identity, and it stars David Bowie. Now, I'm amazed that it isn't one of the most popular films ever, given that list of things um, that you can use to describe it. It's called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And I hadn't even heard of it until a couple of months ago. And it's absolutely fantastic. I watched this uh, a few days before Christmas and I, I loved it pretty much, again, pretty much immediately from the second that it begins. It's the story of a group of allied soldiers living together in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, I think in Java. Uh, it's towards the beginning of the war. I think it's 1942. And it's about the relationships formed between the allied soldiers and the Japanese guards and sort of commandants that police them and guard them as they're stuck in this POW camp. Um, there's a character called Major Sellius, who's played by David Bowie, who's this incredibly rebellious prisoner. He just, he won't accept any authority. You later learn that he's consumed with guilt because he allowed his brother to be bullied when they were growing up together in Australia, I assume based on the accents. The film is never quite clear about it. Um, and the other character, the titular character, Mr. Lawrence, uh, played by Tom Conti, is a British officer, very, very posh, very upper class, very well-to-do, who loves Japan, who understands Japanese very well, who has lived there and has a very good relationship with quite a few of the guards. So the whole film is about these two different men and the relationships they form with the, the people governing the POW camp. Bowie's character uh, forms this very sort of strange relationship with the ultimate head of the camp, played by Ryuchi Sakamoto, who composed the incredible score for the movie as well as acting in it. And Sakamoto, you can tell right from the beginning, is in love with Bowie's character. So it's this film about sort of repressed gay love in this incredibly sort of toxic masculine atmosphere. And Bowie, um, when, when it's never made quite clear whether he also loves the Commandant character or if he's just going along with it to make things a bit easier for himself or just to stir a bit of chaos in the camp. But you have this sort of burgeoning gay romance between these two characters while Mr. Lawrence has this um, relationship with this quite thuggish, brutal guard played brilliantly by Takeshi Kitano, who people might recognize from Battle Royale. Um, so it's these very, two very different relationships where there's this constant struggle of communication. It's two different cultures, different languages, different thoughts and feelings that are difficult to express at that time in that homophobic culture and atmosphere and that kind of violent atmosphere. It's a fantastic movie. I absolutely loved it. Um, have either of you seen it? I have, yeah. And I mean, the theme song goes unbelievably hard. Yeah. The, the score is incredible. Yeah, I, I really like it. 
fantastic. I haven't even heard of this. Like, it sounds like everything that I could possibly want in a film, and I'd never need to see another one again. But um, especially because it's got Bowie in it, I can't believe I haven't heard of it. Um, so I'll have to, because <laughs> I, I think he's great. So I need to see Labyrinth as well, because he's been in a few films and I've, I've known of them, but never seen them. But this one I've literally never heard of. So it, It's bizarre that it's so unheard of. It's really, really strange that it's not, I'm not sure if it's like a rights thing, but it's never on TV. Um, DVD and home media releases of it, I think are quite hard to come by. You never see them in charity shops or anything like that, certainly. Um, but I was lucky enough to pick up the DVD of this for £3.50 from CEX. And the second I saw it, I was like, yeah. And it's directed by um, Nagisa Oshima, who directed In the Realm of the Senses, which is this big, controversial, very explicit, very political Japanese movie from the 70s. So it's this big, beautiful, lavish World War II drama with this electro-synth soundtrack and these very clear sort of gay themes to it. Fantastic. <laughs> As you say, it's like it's everything I could want in a movie, and it's incredible. The ending scene is really, really affecting. You get this little epilogue at the end of the war shared between two characters trying to make sense of the events that have happened throughout the film, which are often sort of very strange, very sudden, very jarring, quite sensual, dealing with lots of mixed feelings and emotions that boil over. And as these two characters pick over the past now that everything's cooled down and they're in this very different place, you kind of feel the strangeness of the relationship that's developed between them. And then you get the title line read out as the last line of the film. And it really hit me. I was, I was holding back tears. I think it's a fantastic movie. Very, very strong recommend from me. So there you go. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I'm glad you really like it, Dom. It's great. <laughs> so that's the next movie for me. Dom, is there anything you saw that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so on a Christmas day, I'm sure we've all been there where the day's winding down, people are leaving, people are going to bed, thought I'd work on a film. A film I actually got for, for Christmas, actually. Um, Sergio Cabucci's The Great Silence. Um, it's a spaghetti western, though it's set in like the snowy mountains, so I thought that's quite thematic with Christmas, quite snowy, wintry. Um, it's like the bleakest film I've ever seen. Um, I love westerns, and this was very bleak. Um, but very brilliant. It basically follows um, a gunslinger named Silence because he doesn't speak. Um, and there's a group of outlaws in the mountains that are being hunted down by bounty hunters led by Klaus Kinski, who, what an evil man, just his performances, he's incredible. Um, like his, the lines on his face have so much acting talent. It's, it's quite unbelievable. Um, and he kind of leads these kind of bounty hunters. He's like, he's like the best one. He wants to kind of get all these outlaws. Um, there's a great moment when he's in like a stagecoach with with like the sheriff. And the sheriff's like, well, all these bounties say dead or alive. And Taskinski's just killing all of them. And his response is, it's expensive to keep them alive. Um, so already got commentary on America as, as a country. Um, and yeah, it's it's the barren wasteland of these mountains, of these snow mountains, just is a perfect kind of representation of how the film feels. It's really bleak, as I say, um, there's no happiness here. The whole kind of myth of the West as full of heroes is just completely just abandoned. Um, the ending is, is, you thought it was bleak and then the ending happens and it's like, they ha I think they made three alternative endings because the, the actual proper ending is so dark and so, it's such a downer that they made alternative endings for like other uh, countries and other markets so they could actually sell tickets because 
the ending is is not the typical heroic moment where the hero goes into the sunset. It's everyone just dies basically, and it's spoilers. Um, but it's 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 fantastic. It's really incredible. It's Kabuchi who also made like uh, Django, kind of invented all the spaghetti western. Is it's probably his best film that I've seen of his so far. Um, and yeah, the shootouts are really great. It's incredibly violent. Good lord, it's you know. Spaghetti Westerns are known for the violence, especially compared to kind of classical Westerns from Hollywood. But this is it. it it's quite horrible in its violence. It's very brutal. Um, but it's brilliant. Perfect Christmas Day viewing, I feel. Um, yeah, I was blown away and it shut up right to one of my favourite Westerns I've seen it. Though I can't really... It's one, of those, it's one of those ones where I'm like, oh, I really enjoyed it. But it's it sounds like I'm crazy by saying that I enjoyed it because of how bleak and dark and barren it is as a film. But it's one of the kind of great representations of what the American West was more like than the myth that we credit of Manifest Destiny and how great the West was. No, it wasn't. It was horrible and you were going to die and everyone around you would kill you for money. And that's basically what the film is. And it's it's brilliant. Yeah, I loved it. Well, that's definitely alternative Christmas viewing, so I have to applaud it. Um, anyone that doesn't watch Love Actually on Christmas Day, I think, deserves a medal. Um, so, you know, watching an incredibly bleak revisionist spaghetti western, that that qualifies. Um, it's snowy, you know, that's Christmas. That qualifies, right? There's snow in it. <laughs> yeah, imagine watching dead snow on Christmas. That'd be fun. Um, how does it uh, hold up against Leone's uh, spaghetti westerns? Um... It's it's very quite different, I would I'd say. It's not as entertaining. That sounds like I'm saying it's bad, but it's not, you know, like there's the great entertaining kind of grand spirit of uh, Leone's Westerns. That's not the case here. Um, there's not many shootouts, actually, I was surprised by. Um, there's The shootouts are quite limited. And when there is a shootout, it's really one-sided. Like, there's no, there's no, like, cool jewel. There's a great build-up. We are literally on the edge of your seat, like in Good Man, the Ugly, or something like that. It's... You know, when someone shoots someone, they it's that's over like that. It's really quite brutal and dark. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I could say more realistic than the only westerns. I don't know if I could say that. Um, but it is. It's not as entertaining. It's a lot more. I don't know. I don't want to reenact this film. And like when I watch like Once Upon a Time in the West, or I'm like, let's reenact that. I don't want to do that with this. <laughs> well, when I was younger, I should say I don't reenact westerns now. I'm 23. But when I was younger, <laughs> I should point out. I don't, if I saw this when I was younger, I'd want to go anywhere near it, I guess. Brilliant. But the score, Ennio Morricone did the score, and it's oh. perfect. Um, just the opening shot when it's just complete, a white mountain, and you see silence come on his horse, and then Morricone begins. It's like, yeah. You, you know, you just know it's going to be a great film just from the opening. It's like, yeah. I have to say, I haven't seen it. Um, continuing the theme um, of the podcast. Almost, have you seen it? <laughs> I know I'm going to continue the theme too. I have not seen it, but it sounds like the type of film maybe I could only watch once because of how dark you said it was. Um, so, for example, when I saw um, Requiem for a Dream, it was an amazing film, but I can never see that film again. It traumatised yeah. me. And for the next, I think, two, three days, I was trying to do work in the library. And I can just feel tears welling up because of how, like, striking it was. So... I think I have to like save it for a day or I can emotionally yeah. cope with that type of film and then kind of put a lid on it. But it does sound incredible. I love how the character's name is Silence. Like, it's just perfect. Yeah. 
yeah it's one of those films where like I'd love to show it to people but I could never like schedule it or like film society or anything like I want people to see it but I couldn't in like a million years screen it for people because everyone would hate me afterwards (laughs) (laughs) you screened Halloween too um and that was a that was an experience yeah I'd say that's like my one pass I was like I only get to do this once and I chose that because yeah (laughs) Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 we are quick to add which is brutal but really quite brilliant <laughs> Almaz uh, I know that you've got another couple of films that you watched over the Christmas period that you'd like to talk about so take it away yes and I'm gonna mention it because it feels inevitable but Spider-Man No Way Home I watched that and um, with a lot of Marvel films uh, I kind of watched them because I was dragged by friends to see them um, and this was no exception. My sister <laughs> insisted that I watch it with her. Um, and I saw The Faults after I left the cinema, I think. I, I want to warn everyone, I'm going to say some spoilers. But um, immediately after, it, it has that quality I think a lot of Marvel films do, where it does, it's so, it is kind of satisfying to watch and it's entertaining and it's bright <laughs> and it's to look at. But when you step away and actually think about the story, you realize, oh God, this is kind of terrible. (laughs) There's plot holes left, right and center. Um, A lot of it doesn't make sense. A lot of the characters, whilst they're based on like a comic book, feel too cartoonish in a way of um, their actions just don't feel justified or the, the development to their decision just it's it's like a switch like nothing led them to act in a certain way it just kind of happened to push the story forward um but one thing that was satisfying was seeing Andrew Garfield spoiler (laughs) in the film um there was a bit of like a cheer in the cinema when he entered uh onto the screen and uh, I think for a lot of audiences it was just kind of like a nostalgia trip and it, it was kind of a nice warm experience in that sense because I I controversially like Andrew Garfield the best I think he's he is my favorite and some people say it's just because he's pretty but I do really like him (laughs) as an actor too um so yeah that film it was enjoyable whilst I was in the cinema there's kind of like it's really nice that it brought audiences out because I think you know cinemas have been struggling recently and lots of screenings are empty so that was a nice aspect to it but as soon as I kind of stepped away and actually thought about the story, it was very daft and <laughs> a lot of things didn't make sense, but it's a Marvel film. You kind of got to take it with a pinch of salt and accept it for what it is. How does it um, stack up to you as a Marvel movie? Cause you said that you've seen quite a few of them. How does it rank? Uh, yeah, I've seen, so I've seen like the uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man adaptations I saw Endgame and oh my god I can't remember the name of them Infinity War those that lot of films near the end of like that phase of Marvel I'm such a fake fan I don't even know what the phases are um and I don't even know how to describe how it stacks up because it kind of blurs all into one for me uh I think uh, I can't decide if it was the best out of the three Tom Holland ones I've seen um, because all of them are a bit naff in a way, but <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm being too harsh because I know a lot of people love them and I don't want to, uh, you know, 
discredit the things that they like but yeah it just blows into one I'd say well there you go Dom have you seen it oh you haven't no I mean I, I oh god I'm, Dom did I spoil it for you really bad <laughs> no I mean I knew what was going it was like the worst kept secret like the, it was it was obvious they were going to be in it you know um, <laughs> um <laughs> no you didn't spoil it for me don't worry um okay. I've been I've been meaning to go but like every time I check the screens that they're in it's always really busy and with like the new covid variant and everything I'm like do I want to risk that um and also the whole cheer in malarkey I'm sure it's really cool if you're into it but for me that's like a big no-no that would annoy me um so yeah it feels like something i'll watch in february because it's probably still going to be on in two months time um so i feel like i'll watch it in an empty cinema because i did yeah. that for one of the marvel ones recently and it was fine um but no i mean i'm kind of in how are the old spider-men in it um uh, they're they're great they're just an enjoyable aspect but there is one moment that did irk me quite a lot and it is a big spoiler but um toby Maguire spider-man uh goes in to defend tom holland spider-man and he's stabbed very dramatically i think by the green goblin okay. and it's this moment of like oh wow this is huge like one of the villains from his story kills him this is like an a, a incredible point uh but then <laughs> Five minutes later, they completely ignore that he was stabbed, very like violently stabbed in the chest. And he just lives and continues on his day okay. in his Spider-Man suit. And that's another aspect that did irk me. Cause I think as horrible as it would have been for maybe some fans to see their favorite Spider-Man die, it would have been like a, a bold choice. Yeah. And they didn't commit to it, they just, you could see him be stabbed and it formed a shocking moment on the screen and then they just ignore it and that was very <laughs> frustrating for me but um about the cheers I think it is a thing where with every film I've seen of Marvel like the screen's always full and there's cheers and I enjoy it for other people but for myself yeah. I'm never really the one cheering I'm just kind of like oh everyone's happy that makes me happy <laughs> I could I saw the reaction on like Twitter in like America and like every two minutes it's a people are standing up and applauding <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm glad they feel that way like it, it's cool but that I'd know I couldn't I couldn't do that though I'm glad like it, the memes that we get out of it when people are just posting those applauds for other films which I have taken part in as well that's that's fun um no I'll get around to it I'll, I'll see it um but no, there's another film which we'll talk about later well I will talk about later that is sort of like the nostalgia stuff and maybe it critiques it um it's the matrix it's but sneak peek for later on when i discuss that but yeah i've, I've heard from what i know about spider-man and what the matrix does it's sort of like the opposite i think i guess what people have said but yeah i'm sure we'll discuss that in a moment i'm sure we will uh in the meantime there's a couple of other films to talk about so the next one that i'm going to talk about here um, it took me by surprise. This is a present that I got for Christmas. Um, it was one of the films that I asked for that I didn't necessarily expect to get. But as soon as I got it, I was incredibly happy and I had to watch it on Christmas Day. I think it was technically Boxing Day because I watched it just after midnight. But it's another Paul Schrader movie. It's a lot older than First Reformed. It's Blue Collar. This is incredible. 
I, I mean, I know that I just, I've been gushing about Paul Schrader a lot so far, and my family have been sick of me doing it all Christmas. Um, <laughs> but he's fast becoming one of my new favourites. I think the only film that really measures up to Blue Collar in terms of its politics is Heaven's Gate. Like, it's the only one that's making a similar point. Blue Collar came out in 1978, so Jimmy Carter's president. It's just before the Reagan era. Um, it's a time when unions still had some power in America, but they were losing power. It's a time of growing corporate power. And Paul Schrader makes this film set in this sort of car auto plant. Uh, I believe it's in Detroit. And you follow three main characters. There's Yafet Koto, who people might know from Live and Let Die and Alien. Great couple of films to be in. Um, <laughs> Richard Pryor, who is like the most revered comedian ever in a dramatic role and an incredible performance from him as well. It's one of the very finest performances I've seen in a while. And Harvey Keitel, who's always a nice chap to see pop up in films. Um, all three of them work at this plant. All three of them are absolutely sick of it. They're proud union men, but they all have problems with their union. They want to stick by it, but they have problems with it. Um, and they're often quite small problems, but they mean a lot to them. Richard Pryor's problem is that his locker has been broken so that he has to open it with a pen every single time. He can't open it with his hand. He has to put a pen in and kind of fiddle it open. And he says, it's actually costing me a lot of money in pens because they keep breaking. And he's like, I, you know, I don't have much money left. This is a real issue for me. And people don't take it seriously because it sounds sort of trivial. But to him, it is really important. He's like, this is just a sign no one cares about me at work. Um, and after a while, all of them come into financial problems. Uh, Harvey Keitel's daughter needs braces, which just made me think of The Simpsons. Um, uh, Richard Pryor um, has tax problems. There's this incredible scene where you realize that he's been cheating his taxes by pretending he has more kids than he does. So he calls up his friend who has kids and has to get his friend to pretend their kids are actually Richard Pryor's. So he's like, yeah, come on, come on in, kids. You've been playing outside to this IRS inspector. It's a fantastic performance from Pryor, as I keep saying. And Yafet Koto is this incredibly cool bachelor that um, they hang out with and have these incredibly debauched evenings full of, sort of sex and drugs. And all of them conspire together and say, well, our union is corrupt. We have problems with it. We're owed money by it, really, because of all the grievances we have against it. They have this safe that they keep very poorly guarded. We're going to rob them. So it's about workers robbing their own union, basically because they have complaints against both their union and their working environment. And I don't want to spoil what happens after they make this decision to rob it, because everything that happens after that each turn is genuinely shocking. And it's incredibly brave, the directions that Paul Schrader takes it in. He wrote the script with his brother, Leonard, um, who they, they co-wrote a lot of movies, like I think Raging Bull and Mishima, they both worked on, which are, you know, obviously are great. It's a fantastic film. It's a great political American movie. Again, like what I said earlier, um, a lot of movies politically now, they just, they don't feel that brave or that unique or that individual with what they're saying. They just feel a bit corporate and bland. This is a movie that's saying that both unions and corporate management conspire together to racially separate people. Like, it's a very specific message about race in America. Yefa Koto and Richard Pryor, uh, Richard Pryor are both black actors. Harvey Keitel's white. And it's about how the events in their lives basically conspire and combine to just separate them from each other. They're really good friends. By the end of the movie, you know, their friendships have absolutely fallen apart, some horrifically poorly. And the way that it investigates how racism creeps into American life, even with your really good friends with someone, how you can become this bitter, vengeful, like violent racist by the end of just a few months of incredibly bad things happening to you. 
how capitalism and how American society can just make you a terrible human being. Brave, brave, brave film to release at the time. And it just looks incredible now. The film opens with this shot of all these men working together at a plant. And it's an original song plays over it. It samples Manish Boy by Muddy Waters. But it's sung by Captain Beefheart, who I love. And the lyrics for it are written by Rai Kuda, who wrote all the music for Streets of Fire, um, which I know Dom loves, and yep. uh, Paul Schrader himself. So it starts with the song Hardworking Man playing over these, this footage of factory life. And from that, uh, from that opening, I was like, yeah, this is going to be great. And what an amazing thing to be able to see a movie about trade union politics that was a big hit in American cinemas in the 70s. Great. I absolutely love it. Blue Collar is a fantastic movie. I'm really glad I saw it. That's one of Schrader's that I haven't got around to yet, though I do have a Blu-ray copy of it and I'm desperate to see it. I can heavily recommend it. It's it's up there with um, his very best, easily. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen it, Almas? No, I haven't, but I was going to say it sounds incredible. Um, and that kind of race exploration and film I don't think is that common. Um, and also, Harvey Cattell, in any film, I'll just watch it because I love him. Um, whether it be like Thelma Louise, which is one of my favorite films, and then uh, Reservoir Dogs, and even Sister Act, which I think is actually underrated massively. <laughs> so now I have to because I just adore Harvey Cattell in literally anything he does. I saw recently Harvey Cattell performing Call Me Maybe. Have you seen that? No, oh no, is that real? Yeah, he performed Call Me Maybe with Carly Rae Jepsen for like this charity event and it's really quite spectacular. I recommend looking it up. I'm making oh, a note wow. of that now before I forget. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrific. <laughs> I just, there's something about him which I just, is brilliant. And I did see Taxi Driver for the first time recently and I thought he was incredible in that. That film was just really, I can't believe I hadn't seen it until that point, but it was amazing. And again, written by Paul Schrader, Taxi Driver. Yeah. You don't need me to tell you how good Taxi Driver is. Anyone yeah. listening to this or Don Almas, I know you both love it. Yeah. Well, there's Blue Collar. Um, if you want to get the Indicator Blu-ray, which I think is one of the few ways you can watch it in Britain, please do. Um, it's a fantastic movie. Now we move on. Dom, another movie you want to talk about? Yeah, so I think as I mentioned it previously, uh, The Matrix, I rewatched uh, the trilogy. I was looking to see the first one in the cinema a few weeks ago, actually, which was, I think, the third time I've seen it in the cinema now, which is always wonderful. I rewatched the sequels because the new one came out. Reload, they both went up in my estimates. I mean, I love them anyway, but rewatching them, I reloaded especially. Matrix Reloaded is like one of the coolest things I think I've ever seen. The last hour of that is just the like the finest kind of big blockbuster American filmmaking of its time. Just the chase sequence on the highway, which everyone knows is great, but just ideas driven. It's really exciting. Revolutions as well went up in my estimation. I thought that was really good. But Resurrections, a um, lot of controversy online, which I saw before I saw the film. And then I came out of it thinking, I, I don't understand why people are so angry about it or why they hate it so much. Um, it is very different. I think it's still very much a Matrix sequel, but it's a film that kind of heavily critiques this kind of idea of fan culture and nostalgia and how fans want certain things to be certain ways. The first act is um, basically Neo is now a video game developer and he made a series of games called The Matrix, 
um, and Warner Brothers want him to make The Matrix 4, which he doesn't want to make. Um, a lot of self-aware commentary going on here. And there's a great montage where it's just like this writer's room talking about what they want to see in The Matrix 4. Like, we got to have bullet time. we got to have big, loud. we got to have, you know, capitalist critique. we got to have trans politics. All these words are being thrown around. And, you know, Neo just looks off in disillusionment of like, these people have no idea what, what the point of the matrix was or what I was trying to do with the matrix and um it's very kind of apparent that the film is is it's Lana Wachowski kind of reclaiming the matrix obviously you know some elements of the matrix have been co-opted and appropriated by kind of people online that really shouldn't have done it and misunderstood what the matrix was about and what it meant um but I think more importantly the film is sort of when she's reclaiming it it's very much not a takedown of like a cynical takedown of, of IP like I've seen people say it is because it's, it's not cynical at all I don't think um it is kind of taking down this whole how studios love fan service now and love nostalgia and love going back to previous things and rebooting it but it's also her kind of pleading that there's actually an artist behind these films there's actually people who make these and it's personal to them when studios just want to ignore that and just get whoever they can to make it um and the reaction I've seen online to the Matrix Resurrections just proves the point. I've seen people be like, it shouldn't have been made or it should have been made by someone who actually wanted to make it, completely ignoring that this was a film that Lana Wachowski made like personally and it, was, it meant things to her and meant things that would never make sense to certain people. And those people are demanding that someone else make it. And it, it blows my mind that these people are film, paid film critics who just are illiterate um, it blows my mind um, and it's incredibly frustrating because I mean I've, I've written my review and I've, I've sent it in every piece of reading about every piece of writing I read about it is just I'm incredibly jealous of every writer who's written about this film so far in a positive manner because it's so interesting and so brilliant and every negative review I've seen is just people just complaining about stupid stuff like they're dismissive of it and it's really upsetting um, but no, it, it's it's a brilliant film. I loved it. Um, the way it kind of reclaims it, the way it kind of, how openly queer it is, I think is, it's not surprising, but in a blockbuster landscape that we have now, it's kind of revolutionary in it. The film is explicitly kind of queer and how it rejects binaries and how it rejects social kind of expectations. And it just suggests that binaries are you know, we should reject them. Um, love is the way, embrace love. People saying it's kind of too sentimental, just, did you see the first Matrix? Trinity literally brings Neo back to life by kissing him at the end of the first Matrix. And now they're complaining because they hold hands in the new one and it's bizarre to me. Um, the final 20 minutes, I've just, my part was skipping a beat. The concept of the action, the shot when they're on a motorbike and two cars next to them blow up and another car in front of them blows up and he's spinning and they go through it and it's really cool and looks incredible. Um, Jonathan Groff as Smith is absolutely fantastic. What they did with Smith in this one is really fascinating. Um, I mean, Smith is, is now a trans character, which is terrific. Um, and again, people who are criticizing the film don't seem to pay attention to these elements, which they just, they don't understand it. And it, it's frustrating. Um, Neil Patrick Harris as well is fantastic as the analyst um, who has a great sequence of bullet time and um, bullet time is, of course is groundbreaking in the original Matrix and obviously a lot of people expected the new one to be groundbreaking as well but obviously technology has advanced so much in 20 years that I don't think we'll ever have like that Matrix moment again but the way this film uses bullet time in like an exposition scene is really quite fun and really 
an interesting use of it. Um, Jessica Henwick is Bugs, as in Bugs Bunny. At one point she says, what's up, Doc? And I, I chuckled to myself, it was really cool. She's, she's wonderful in it. Um, she has a great scene with Neo where she discusses that because Neo's like, well, if the Matrix still exists, what was the point in anything I did? What was the point in sacrificing myself? And what was the point in Trinity sacrificing herself at the end of the Matrix Re Revolutions? And Bugs just says that like, what you did meant the world to me, to people like me, and then others took it and made it trivial. And it's like, this is wonderful. And I'm, I'm so happy with how sentimental this is and how as an artist reclaiming her work. And yeah, the ending, the way it rejects binaries and suggests love is the way forward is wonderful and magical directions i absolutely adored um and yeah it's it's terrific and i hope people will give it a chance um because it feels genuinely kind of revolutionary in the current landscape we have well you've maybe want to watch it so well done <laughs> um, from what you were saying about the stuff with uh Keanu Reeves character Neo you know being a game designer and having to sort of make the new Matrix it sounds like eight and a half meets the Matrix <laughs> yeah and uh, I've seen people do New Nightmare as well as a comparison point which is it's very very accurate um yeah that scene is great like it's literally just kind of because they were gonna the Warner Brothers were gonna make the Matrix 4 I remember they were gonna reboot it without the Wachowskis and obviously this film is you know they were gonna do it anyway Lana might as well come back to do it and you know do it properly um which the film is very self-aware about um yeah <laughs> Olmaz have you seen it I've never actually seen any Matrix adaptation which I know is awful because I should have by now but um all I can say is Keanu Reeves he seems like a lovely man <laughs> and uh I I need to see it it's something I, I've been lacking on so much so your like enthusiasm for it is just making me realize god i actually need to get on that brilliant well there's the matrix resurrections do you have anything more you want to say about it Dom? um just the discourse around it is ridiculous like i've seen people say it's like last jedi level discourse which kind of though the funny thing about the last jedi is that that's still very much a star wars film it's ridiculous that five years of discourse over what is essentially a, a Star Wars film. Whereas this is just, the, the fact that people are like, oh, now it doesn't contain this, like, oh, there's no Kung Fu in it anymore. It's like, that's, it's the point. You're missing the point. It's very upsetting, the state of kind of media bloggers. Um, oh, well. The people who are writing about it are fantastic and I'm jealous of everyone who's written about it so far because they're all wonderful writers. If you want to read what Dom has to say about it, pick up the January issue of The Boar, in which the film section will contain his review. So that was The Matrix Resurrections. Now, Olmaz, do you have another movie that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so this is the last film I think I'll talk about, and it's the most recent film I've seen. I saw it last night. The Kingsman. And basically it's about how the Kingsman service, which is like a secret intelligence agency, was set up. And it's set in World War One, and uh, the film stars Ralph Fiennes, who uh, I was very excited to see because I think anything he does tends to be really good. But the film was very tonally off, and it's had quite bad reviews. I remember just before I went in the cinema, I saw like a Guardian review of two stars for it, which made me very nervous. Um, but I think it was a very difficult film to get right because it's set in World War One, 
and it's obviously this horrible time of war and it it's the previous films had been like quite comedic and lighthearted, but this one was surprisingly very dark. Um, so there's a scene in which um, the soldiers uh, are lined up and they're about to go over the top and there's no music playing um, and they're preparing themselves to risk their lives and they go over and just one after another. Oh, also, I'm warning you all, There's I'm going to give you a lot of spoilers. Um, they're all you know, brutally killed. And it's kind of, it was just so awful and difficult to see, but it was kind of refreshing in a way because I think, especially British film, we romanticize World War One and World War Two, and we glamorize like sacrificing your life for your country and the honor of it. But in reality, these men were really scared and it was just a horrible experience where millions of lives were lost for no reason really it, it was so avoidable and uh I say it's tonally weird because the film focuses on sort of the upper class the white upper classes in England um trying to do their best uh for World War One um and they touch upon colonialism and they touch upon class, but I don't think they do it in a way that was fully effective. And um, one of the things that makes it so is there's a villain who's secretly behind uh, World War One, according to this film. <laughs> and he ends up just being a working class Scottish guy. Um, so everything felt, quite confused and uh, the whole idea why this Scottish guy is really vengeful is because part of his land was taken away because of Ralph Fiennes' character, his family owning certain land and destroying his family's business. And there's, it doesn't ex explore that enough. It doesn't, uh, you know, give a justified reason for the villain why he would rightfully be upset and I feel like yeah everything was kind of just a bit confused and class race everything was just a little bit muddled but overall it was very entertaining especially um I didn't realize at the time uh there's this Rasputin figure and before when seeing trailers I assumed it was the guy from the fourth Harry Potter film uh, who plays the kind of Russian head teacher. Uh, I can't remember the character's name, but he looked like a carbon copy of that character. And then I remember seeing uh, Reese Evans in the, uh, in the credits and thinking, when was he in the film? I never saw Reese Evans. And it turns out Reese Evans <laughs> was Rasputin the whole time. And the makeup and costume of that character was brilliant. He added a lot of comedy. There was a fight scene where He's sort of doing a Russian dance and dancing around the room and he's very difficult to kill which kind of follows that mythology of Rasputin and how he was under ice and how you could just never uh, defeat him and an another strange moment you got to saw was uh, you got to see was uh, Reese Evans licking uh, Ralph Fiennes' leg <laughs> trying to fix his broken leg which is a plot point in the film very unusual to see but um 
yeah, it was entertaining enough, um, but I can understand the criticism for the film because uh, it, it's, it just needed a little bit more uh, thought towards attitudes towards colonialism. One of the characters, Ruffines, was fighting in a war where he was killing, um, I can't remember exactly where, but killing people just trying to protect their land. And he becomes a pacifist because of that. And you kind of expect it to forgive him, but it doesn't do a full deconstruction of this. And especially now when we're questioning uh, the British Empire right now um, and how the British education system largely ignores that. I think having films like this where they address it is good because it's like making people actually stop and see. But um, yeah, I understand the criticism for it because it just didn't quite get it right. Um, but I do like the fact that it didn't glamorize and romanticize war. It showed it to be this horrible thing that destroyed lives and just was awful for men's mental health and the soldiers' mental health. Um, but they cheekily set themselves up for a sequel at the end and you got to see Hitler. <laughs> I think it's alluding to the fact that they want to make a World War II film. Um, so we'll see how much of a car crash that is. <laughs> I don't know how they're going to pull that off. But uh, yeah, we'll see, I guess. I know that, Dom, you aren't a fan of the previous films as well. No, I'm not. No, which... I, I quite enjoy the first one. Yeah. But I know that you really don't like them anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm confused because I thought this was like a Bond spoof. And now it's like a World War One thing. Yeah, it, it wasn't what I thought it would be, considering how the other films were funny and supposed to be very entertaining. This one was actually quite dark and there were loads of sequences of people just being brutally murdered or, uh, yeah, it was very odd. It was very strange because they try and be comedic, <laughs> but then they're showing violence, but it's, uh, I don't even know what to think. I'm still wrapping my head around right. what they're trying to achieve with this film. Yeah, when you speak of like what the film tries to get to, Matthew Vaughan, I just, I don't trust him to take on those issues really. So yeah, I think my dad saw it though, and he's a history teacher and like focusing on World War One, and he said like a lot of it was just very misguided in what they were attempting. Yeah, it helps to understand the film if you have like a baseline knowledge right. of World War One, but yeah. it kind of takes elements of it and like runs with it and adds its own story to it, which you can understand because it's an adaptation of a historical event, but. Um, yeah, a lot of things are brushed over, like um, the whole Russian Revolution uh, and uh, the leader, the czar of the country. He's just kind of made to seem like a jealous cousin <laughs> of the uh, English king. And yeah, it, it tries to do it, but it, it's very difficult because it's trying to do something about a historic event and tries to make it funny, but also tries to address how traumatizing it was and everything was just confused, I think. Well, there's The Kingsman. I haven't seen it myself. I must admit, um, sorry, Dom, I do quite like the first uh, Kingsman film. I do think it is really entertaining, <laughs> um, despite some flaws with it, obviously. Um, 
But yeah, I've, the stuff I've seen of the Kingsman has really confused me because I love Ray Fiennes, so that's a that's something positive, I guess. But just why are they making more Kingsman? It it just it's really strange that this has become like a big franchise. I don't know. It feels like they should have just stopped at the first one, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And also having Ralph Fiennes, who's just an incredible actor, that's why I was excited to see the film because I trust him. However, the way the film was written made his acting seem bad. He was a perfectly good actor, but there were certain moments where it was too emotional too early on and it felt like they were holding up a plaque saying, cry now or <laughs> laugh at this bit. Um, so I think they did it in a disservice in a way because he did the best he could with what he had. And I still respect him as an actor, but um, yeah, they did him dirty with the way that they edited it so that his emotional scenes were just too quick and they didn't linger in the right type of way. So yeah, I don't think it, it should have been made. Maybe they should have just left it at the first one because I do love the first one. Um, but uh, I guess if they manage to get enough funding for the next prequel, we're going to see some kind of Hitler World War II spoof <laughs> somehow. I'm very, very nervous for what that film will be. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe in a couple of years we'll have that come out. Well, there's The Kingsman. Have you got anything more you want to add about it, almost? No, I think that's uh, everything I wanted to mention because it's the last film I saw. And uh, the only other film that I would have touched upon was Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I didn't really have anything to say. It's just the one I saw on Christmas Day. <laughs> that's a good Christmas film yeah. watch, I think. Yeah, it was pretty good, but um, I don't think I'd have anything important to add about it. So. <laughs> yeah, Fair I'll enough. let you two carry on. Well, that's cool. Um, to get on to like the next film that I wanted to talk about, this is a film, again, kind of like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I'm amazed this isn't talked about more. I know that it's one of the ones you want to watch almost because you've listed it on Letterboxd as a, you know, on your watch list. This is a 1960s drama about lesbianism with Audrey Hepburn, Shirley MacLaine and James Garner directed by William Wyler, who directed The Best Years of Our Lives, which I think might be the best movie to come out of America during the 1940s, apart from Citizen Kane. And it's absolutely incredible. I was incredibly moved. It's an incredibly powerful movie. It's called The Children's Hour. Have either of you two seen it? I know that you haven't almost, but Dom? I haven't seen it, no. Do, um, <laughs> in one word. It's incredible. <laughs> Um, the story is about two women who, as I say, are played by Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine. You might recognize Shirley MacLaine um, from The Apartment, if anyone has seen that listening. Audrey Hepburn, you all know. Um, they both work at this girls' boarding school. Shirley MacLaine's character has never had a boyfriend and has never had a serious relationship. She isn't engaged. She says she doesn't want to have kids. She's quite happy just working away at this girls' boarding school. Audrey Hepburn's character is engaged to James Garner, who you might recognize from The Great Escape. He's been in a couple of other good movies. The Americanization of Emily is a little interesting one he's in. Um, they're both working at this school. So Audrey Hepburn's engaged, Shirley MacLaine's single. They have this nice little world. Audrey Hepburn's been engaged for years to James Garner, but they're gonna get married very soon. They've finally set a date for it after the next term ends at the school. There's one girl at the school who is just horrible. She's like one of the most evil children you'll ever see in any film. She's just a bully. She's cruel. She breaks the rules at the school. And we have a lot of sympathy for both the teachers because we know they're nice people. And they start to punish her just because they kind of have to, to stop her breaking the rules constantly and being cruel to the other kids. 
in response, she listens into a couple of conversations that Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine have um, about kind of the relationship that Audrey Hepburn's in with James Garner's character, about Shirley MacLaine being single. And from this, she kind of pieces together this little lie narrative that um, Shirley MacLaine is gay and that both she and Audrey Hepburn have been in this secret lesbian relationship. And she tells her grandmother it so that she can get out of going to this boarding school that she really hates. Her grandmother is this fiercely homophobic woman who just immediately spreads the lie all around town that these two are in a lesbian relationship. This is 1961. It's pretty incredible for the time that it's dealing very openly with these themes. And it just completely wrecks their lives. The town is so homophobic that these two women are ostracized. All the kids leave the school. It places incredible strain on Audrey Hepburn's relationship with James Garner, which was going very well beforehand. And it's just how this incredibly intolerant homophobic society can believe the word of someone who is seen as sort of normal and non-deviant by the rules of this incredibly messed up, cruel, bigoted, um, intolerant system and use it to punish people. Um, the play, it was based on a play written by Lillian Hellman that came out in the 1930s. And I think some people have raised questions about the play, about whether it's homophobic or not, because it's about, well, do these two women not want to be seen as gay because they're homophobic? But I think William Wyler is very clever with how he adapts it into the film because he doesn't focus on that aspect, which could be problematic. I think his film is much more about how an intolerant homophobic society is killer, how it kills people, how it's not just something that's sort of cruel, but there, but how it actively can make people, um, how, how it can actively end people's lives. I, I think that's what the movie's about. So that's an incredibly strong central component for the film to be about. The acting is incredible. I mean, Audrey Hepburn, I love Hepburn. I think she's wonderful. But I think a lot of the time when I see her in films, it's more her sort of star power and screen presence than her genuine acting skills that I'm appreciating. But she's really good here. I think this is the best performance I've seen her give. Shirley MacLaine is beyond incredible. Easily the best performance I've seen from her, although admittedly I haven't actually seen her in that many movies. But she has some incredibly powerful scenes later on in the movie that I wouldn't dare spoil. Wyler's approach to direction here is fantastic. It's based on a play. Um, it's mostly set in one house, so you can imagine it'd be a bit stagey. But what he does is he sets up these brilliantly blocked scenes where you have really just aesthetically pleasing arrangements of characters in a location. He'll keep the master shot very, very still for a while with very slow camera movements. Then when something dramatic happens, he'll quickly cut, he'll do a quick cut to a close-up or a reaction shot. And it's really effective because it's very slow, very steady. And then suddenly there's this absolute whirlwind of confusion and chaos. And he does it, he, he captures it very well. I really like Wyler. I think he's an incredibly accomplished director. The child cast in this film is really good. There's one actress in particular called, um, I believe her name's Veronica Cartwright. And she's in This and The Birds. They both came out around the same time. Um, she grew up to act in Alien. Um, she's the woman that screams, oh my God, when the chest burster comes out of John Hurt's chest, interestingly. So that's a nice little fun fact. Um, but she's incredible here. She plays a character who is a kleptomaniac, essentially. She's so a child that just constantly steals bits of jewelry from other children um, in this boarding school or from parents. And this real cruel bully tyrant kid that starts the lie catches her in the act of stealing some jewelry and makes her go along with the lie. Otherwise, she'll basically let people know that she's a, she's a kleptomaniac that she keeps stealing. 
and Veronica Cartwright playing this kleptomaniac character has to very convincingly cry and break down several times. And it's really quite affecting. You really buy into it. It's, you know, it's, it's with, with film, you're used to so much violence and so much cruelty um, on screen that's often so cartoony that just seeing a child cry in a film presented realistically, it's very affecting to me because it's not the kind of thing you see focused on as something so heartbreaking and so unkind. Um, and I really like seeing films about childhood that deal with the harsher side of it. I don't think childhood is a perfectly sunny, nice, happy place to be. You know, I certainly had a lot of problems as a kid and it's nice to see a film that deals with how tough it can be to be a kid and how cruel kids can be to other kids. It's a fantastic movie. I mean, it's, it's a sort of early queer classic. So I'm amazed it hasn't got like a big video essay about it on YouTube. It seems like one of the movies that would be absolutely right for that or a big Twitter post or some kind of active discourse. And the ending is absolutely shocking. After this whole, um, Wyler directs the whole film, as I say, quite conservatively, apart from those quick shots, those quick close-ups. And then in the end, he changes his style dramatically. Alex North does the score. He did the music for Spartacus, which is a fantastic score. And this very, very powerful, shocking scene happens. The score wells and Wyler's style becomes a lot more free-flowing and dynamic over these final few scenes. And I was nearly in floods with those last couple of scenes. It really, really got to me. So The Children's Hour is an incredibly powerful drama. Um, I think I, I wrote a letterboxed review of it. What did I say here? Oh yeah, I said it's the best film I've seen since First Reformed, which it is. But in terms of the directorial style, I said it's kind of like Douglas Sirk, Lars von Trier, Nicholas Rain, Ingmar Bergman combined. It's a very intense, powerful drama with incredibly beautiful, sympathetic women being treated cruelly. And it really looks at bigotry and intolerance. And because it's a queer classic, I love it. <laughs> um, it's a fantastic film. I'm just amazed more people haven't seen it. It's one of those ones that I think really could benefit from being more widely seen and would become a much more popular film. Um, thanks, Auntie, for getting me that for Christmas. That's the children's hour. Have, um, I know that both of you haven't seen it, but um, Dom, what are your thoughts? Have you ever heard about it or anything like that? No, I haven't really actually heard it discussed at all. That's like the first I've actually heard of it in depth and it sounds, sounds really good. It sounds like I need to get around to it. Would the library have it at Warwick? Good question. I know it's on box of broadcasts in quite a low okay. quality. I think it's like a 2002 video recording or something. So yeah. the quality isn't great. And I don't think the library has it, but um, the, uh, the BFI Blu-ray I have of it is brilliant. So, you know, if you, if you feel ah, up, okay. that's a good one to get. <laughs> yeah, nice. Olmaz, I know you're a big Audrey Hepburn fan. I am. I love her. And the reason why I did add it to my watch list is, to be honest, solely just because of her. Um, I've tried to work my way through her films. And I think I've seen sort of the bigger films that she's known for, like Breakfast at Tiffany's, Sabrina, Funny Face, those type of uh, films. And then I've tried to explore other films. So uh, there's a film called The Nun's Story, which she was in. And I don't think it's discussed as much as her other sort of like star kind of roles. Um, so this, you're really selling this film to me now, because I, I think uh, I didn't really know much about the story. I just wanted to see it because of her. But um, Considering you're calling it like a potentially a queer classic, that's that seems really interesting to me. And um, yeah, I think she's just incredible. <laughs> I think maybe a part of me has romanticized her a bit, but she just seems like an incredibly charming person. And I think you're right in the fact that sometimes a lot of her films kind of rely on just her as a star. And you kind of look at her like, oh, she's this beautiful kind of fairy-like creature who, 
uh, is on the screen and you just can't help but be charmed. But her acting is sometimes ignored. So uh, a film I saw of her uh, was Charade. And I think Fantastic. there she kind of, yeah, I remember discussing it with you actually. And I love Charade. Kind of out in that as well. Um, so I think I'd like to see this to appreciate her, not just for kind of like external beauty or just the fantasy of what she brings, but for her actual talents, I think that would be quite a good place to start with this film. I, I, I can't recommend it enough. I think this is probably, I mean, it's tough comparing it to First Reformed because they're such different movies. And because I've seen The Children's Hour last night, I guess it's the one that's more on my mind. But I think it probably is the best film I've seen since um, we broke up for the holidays. It's, it's a real stunner. And it's great because I love watching movies from that time, from the early 60s that brilliant widescreen, high contrast, black and white cinematography that's so common in movies from that time, like 12 Angry Men, like Lolita, like Cape Fear. And it, it fully fits into that perfectly. And I love Wyler as a director. I think he's really slept on. It's a shame that his name is William Wyler because I think people just think of Billy Wilder, um, <laughs> especially since Billy Wilder cast Shirley MacLaine in the apartment and this film came out right around the same time and it also has Shirley MacLaine in it. Um, but Weiler is a really innovative, quite radical director. His movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, which the library does have, is just absolutely incredible. Um, when we get to our episode about our favourite films of the 40s, Dom, that's going to be on there. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, he, he, what he does is he creates this very normal, steady, slow, typical Hollywood kind of film where you have just master shots in rooms, lots of people talking, but then towards the end, to just heighten it, he'll really do something spectacular. As this movie gets more intense and dramatic, he starts using split diopter shots. It's, it's like a Brian De Palma film suddenly. He's, he's using split diopter shots in the early 60s. The only other film I can think of that does that is The Innocents, and that's incredible too. So a heavy recommend for me. The Children's Hour is an incredible movie. Now, Dom, did you have another film that you wanted to talk about? <clears throat> yes, I did. Um, so I think on our best of the 21st century episode, I spoke about uh, Olivia Assias's um, Demon Lover, which is a film I absolutely adore. And Assias has been a director that I've kind of delved into more this year and he's become one of my favourites. Um, and the other day I watched Boarding Gates, which works as kind of a nice sister film, a nice companion piece to uh, Demon Lover. Um, it stars Asia Argento as Sandra, who um, is kind of like the ex-lover of Michael Madsen's um, debt-ridden entrepreneur character so this businessman who owes loads of money and he's gonna sell all these shares to like um another another company and um sandra kind of comes in and kind of offers him this kind of venture to open up this um kind of business in in beijing and um they have kind of like a meeting or go on to have a meeting um which kind of ends quite poorly for one of them um and then arguably ends quite poorly for both of them. Sandra also works at kind of this import plant um, where she brings in shipments, but she's also kind of dealing drugs on the side there and kind of gets in trouble, um, which kind of interwines with her meeting with Michael Madsen's character. And very much like Demon Lover, it starts off the first half is this really wordy, really dialogue heavy meetings between people. Whereas in Demon Lover, it was in kind of boardrooms and kind of this espionage. This is just kind of in apartments and back offices. Um, and then like Demon Lover, it kind of just in the middle, just goes crazy and goes like it's really stripped down 
kind of action thriller. It's Asiasi's version of like a Euro trash movie, sort of, um, in kind of an art house flair. Very much like a Demon Lover is his version of like a espionage spy movie stripped down. This does that as well. Um, Sandrin's up in like Hong Kong and it becomes like an action thriller. It's really this kind of liminal stripped down shootout that occurs. Um, I was really blown away. Like Demon Lover, the first half I'm kind of, because it's so wordy and because people are talking like business-like and espionage-like, I'm, I'm like, what on earth is going on? I have no idea what's happening. And then midway through it becomes this stripped down genre piece, which can kind of go either way. I kind of like, I feel like you could watch this film like Demon Lover, where you watch it and you're like, what on earth is happening? I have no idea. I have no connection to anything. Um, and you're ever going to love that or hate it. I love it personally. Um, but similar to not only kind of its structure to Demon Lover, it's really quite a companion piece um, in terms of how it depicts kind of late stage capitalism and this idea of transactions and how money and, and transactions can ruin your life, but they can also be the thing that saves you and that kind of contradiction there and how complex it is. Um, the idea, the link between kind of sex and power. Um, I thought it was brilliant. I mean, a lot of people don't like it, um, but, and I, I kind of guess why I can, it's again, this whole idea of what on earth is happening. First half is this wordy stuff. Second half is stripped down genre, which I don't think, <laughs> It's difficult to appeal to both of those audiences and often when you put them together like both audiences won't care about that um but it's right up my alley i adore it and asias has become one of my favorite directors like i said um i saw demon lover like twice in the same month when i first saw it. i couldn't get it out of my head and this i can feel being very similar um king gordon appears from sonic youth she makes a cameo for some reason it's kind of cool um yeah, Asia Argento is fantastic in it. Someone, I think, uh, someone noted that it was like, the way she acts here is like, Klaus Kinski's daughter got switched in the hospital by mistake. That's how she plays this role, as if she's Kinski's daughter, in her intensity and in her kind of, the way she holds herself. And I can see that. It is a performance on, on par with something Kinski would do. Michael Madsen is terrific. Quite strange to see him, I think. Michael Madsen's had a really weird career. Obviously, he's in Tarantino's films a lot, but... I remember my first exposure to him was on Celebrity Big Brother in like 2007 or something like that, or 09, it was around that time. And it's always weird when he's in Tarantino movies. So I'm like, hang on, his films are either Tarantino movies, Celebrity Big Brother, or some DVD movie you've never heard of. And he's in this weird French Euro trash art movie. And he's wonderful, he suits it perfectly. He's the size of him. The way he walks around rooms and holds himself is really a sight to behold. Um, and I thought it was great kind of the opening line of dialogue lets you know instantly that it's about kind of this idea of money and transactions when he speaks about, oh yeah, best on the market, like this gun he shoots, he shoots a gun and goes best on the market, got it for a deal of like $600. So instantly it's you know, power and money and, and how that corrupts and how it's complex and intertwined and how transactions in the modern world, transactions are everything. And yeah, Asias is just one of the great 21st century filmmakers, I think, highlighting 21st century existence. Um, very similar to Black Hat, actually. Now, now I think about it, it's very Michael Mann Black Hat-esque. I can imagine Michael Mann saw this before he made Black Hat. Um, and if you like Black Hat, like I do, I'm sure you'll love Boarding Gates. It's wonderful. It was going to be called Departed because it is very much this idea of moving from location to location. But um, The Departed came out like as they were filming it and they thought it was a bad idea to name it after the Scorsese Best Picture winner. Um, but Boarding Gate, I think, is equally a wonderful title. 
Um, but again, like Hasiasi's other films, it's about kind of finding yourself in a world that you're not familiar to, with, the, the kind of isolation and alienation, whether it be kind of the business world or the espionage world or, you know, another country, another culture of how these characters are kind of alienated. And it does it perfectly. And I think it is a perfect kind of summation of 21st century existence, just this idea of you're lost and how everything has to, everything has a price, I think, is a great way to put it. And yeah, I, I loved it. It's, it's really good. I'm surprised more people don't talk about it, but it's terrific. Fantastic. The Boarding Gate. I mean, I love talking to you, Dom, because I always just find out about films like this. I've never heard of The Boarding Gate. The cast is great. I mean, I like Michael Madsen. Um, it sounds great. I want to see it. Yeah, Asias is quite interesting because recently, his more recent films like Personal Shopper and Clouds of Sils Maria, uh, those are kind of the first ones I saw of him. And they did really well kind of like awards wise and festival wise. And I, I had this perception of him as a filmmaker. And then I kind of earlier this year went through his you know, early filmography, seeing like Demon Lover and Irma Beth and Carlos the Jackal. And I was like, this, I underestimate this guy. This guy is really good. And his earlier films like Demon Lover and Boarding Gate, they're, they're not really discussed as much as I feel like they should do, which is strange considering how successful something like Personal Shopper was and Clouds of Sils Maria, which I think uh, Christian Stewart was the first American uh, to win a Best Actress Award at like the French Oscars for that film. I think, if I'm not mistaken. So I feel like he's, he's, in, he's due a revival, I think, his earlier films are a reconsideration. Um, but yeah, Boarding Gate should be up there because it's terrific. What do you think about it, Olmaz? Um, I'd never even heard of this film before. Um, I, I don't even know what to make of it. I'm looking it up right now. And yeah, I'll have to look into it myself because... The cast seems really interesting. I don't think I've heard of many of them apart from Michael Madsen. Uh, yeah, I don't really know what else to add apart from that. It just sounds very unusual. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go, Boarding Gate. Now, we're running out of time a little bit here, but I thought it might be a nice idea to just quickly run through a couple more of the films that I've seen over Christmas um, and just sort of note a couple of things about them. And then you two can do the same if you'd like to. Um, so the other films I've seen, I watched Sabotage, Hitchcock's 1930, I think 36 movie for the first time. It's fine. It's, it's exactly what you'd expect from an early Hitchcock. It's like, it's decent. It's fine. It's good. Not much more to say. It works. He made better stuff later. Uh, I watched The Right Stuff for the first time, which is a really good movie. It's about the first NASA astronauts that went into space, not the ones that went to the moon, but the ones that kind of came before that, like John Glenn and Gus Grissom and all these people. Fantastic cast. And it really clued me in on how handsome Sam Shepard is. I could watch him walk around a desert all day long. Incredibly handsome man. My, my. Um, I watched The Tarnished Angels, which I know Dom really loves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was good. Really decent, solid Douglas Sirk movie. It's interesting seeing him work in black and white. I'm so used to his films being so lavish and colourful. Yeah. But yeah, I know that you love Tarnished Angels, Dom. It's probably my favourite Sirk. Just Ooh. that bit with the, the kids on like the plane merry-go-round and then his dad's flying in an actual plane and he's the kid's just screaming to let him off. It's just, oh, I, I cried so much at that point. <laughs> oh, Dom. It's a really good movie and the plane stunts are really quite spectacular yeah. in it. Um, I watched a bizarre film called Theatre of Blood, which is Vincent Price playing an actor called Edward Lionheart, who murders all the critics that gave him bad reviews. And he murders each one of them to reenact a Shakespeare play murder. 
So he drowns one in a vat of wine because that happens in like Richard III. And he like kills another one with a spear because that's how someone dies. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous movie. It's incredible too, though. The cast is stunning. It's got Vincent Price, Diana Rigg, Dennis Price, um, not related as far as I know, Jack Hawkins. It's, it's a genuinely fantastic movie with a really good cast. And if you love just silly, gory British movies from the 70s, you'll love it. Heavy recommend. I watched Honeymoon, um, which is a Michael Powell, not Pressburger as well, just Michael Powell alone, ballet film shot in Spain. It's fine. Nice ballet sequences. Bit boring otherwise. Sorry, Michael. You're a legend otherwise. Dog Day Afternoon, Al Pacino. Fantastic. As good as everyone says. Really good. I don't really have anything else to say about it except everything works. Maybe it didn't quite blow me away in the same way it does other people, but fantastic low-key 70s movie. Um... Blue Collar I've mentioned. Anatomy of a Murder, really fascinating. Really long. It's like two hours and 40 minutes. It's um, Jimmy Stewart plays this lawyer who has to represent a young soldier, Ben Gazzara, who's being prosecuted for having murdered a man who has very, very clearly sexually assaulted his wife. That's what the story's about. The whole plot basically hinges on the the lawyers for the um for the state that are prosecuting ben Gazzara's character basically kind of have to prove that the sexual assault didn't happen so jimmy stewart has to stand up for this woman that was very clearly assaulted so very interesting for its time 1959 osher preminger directing great movie duke ellington does the soundtrack and cameos in it and he's a jazz legend so that's pretty cool um lee remick is absolutely fantastic in it as the woman uh, that was assaulted her portrayal of that character is really quite stunning for the time because she has so much agency and power in herself the movie isn't really about the sort of men controlling her it's kind of about more how she has agency and how she won't allow this event to define her really fantastic film calamity jane really good very 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 gay like it's one of the gayest films ever made and it's um again it's it's a queer classic it's Doris Day basically playing a cowboy lesbian. I mean, if that doesn't appeal to you as a film, I don't know who you are because it's great. It's fantastic. And finally, I watched The Sound of Music for the first time. I can't believe I haven't seen it before. It's one of those ones I probably should have seen as a kid. But um, Robert Wise directs it basically like a sort of kids bop version of a David Lean movie. Um, you know, that's a good way to direct a film. It's like a sort of very sugary, child-friendly David Lean film with a little bit of Visconti thrown in. I think he might have watched The Leopard before he saw it, just in terms of how he sort of makes this story about the kind of the upper crust in Austria, kind of reminds me of the story about the upper crust in Sicily. But fantastic movie. The musical sequences are great. Loved how it looked. The performance is great. And again, Christopher Plummer, very handsome. Dom, did you see any other good movies you want to mention quickly? Uh, yeah. So I watched War of the Worlds, Spielberg's version. The man can absolutely... He's incredible. Obviously, everyone knows he's a master at blocking, but man, I was crying through half of it. Spectacular stuff. Um, After Earth, M. Night Shyamalan. I know most people hate it. Second half of it, if it's a silent movie, it'd be terrific. I think it's quite interesting. Jen Smith is not good, unfortunately, which is bad when he's the entire film. But the guy can direct <laughs> um, Dishonored, the Josie von Sternberg film, Molly Dietrich. Incredible. She plays like a spy. And it's wonderful movies never really get better than the way um, his films are lit. The way Molina Dietrich is lit in films, it's just, it, it changed lighting forever, obviously. And it's wonderful. 
Um, Shanghai Express, also along those lines, wonderful film. Um, Young Girls of Rochford, Jack Demi, like the perfect film, I think. I've never been happier watching that film. Um, incredible musical sequences are lovely. When Gene Kelly showed up for the first time in it, I lost my mind. Um, absolutely wonderful, wonderfully composed as well. Um, the use of widescreen, terrific. And um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, a film's runtime only matched by its long title. Um, Brad Pitt is wonderful in it. Casey Affleck is good. Um, looks incredible. I mean, I learned that uh, Andrew Dominic, who um, directed it, was inspired by Days of Heaven, and you can tell instantly it looks like a painting at times. Um, really good western. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that's a great list of movies. Um, Olmers, did you see anything else you want to mention? Um, so I had a couple of rewatches. I rewatched snatch it the rewatch didn't hold up though i think the first time i watched it i was highly entertained and then the second time it just didn't charm me as much but brad pitt doing like an irish accent <laughs> was interesting um i saw manhattan murder mystery not sure how to feel uh i don't it's not my favorite woody allen but woody allen as a person is tricky to discuss anyway <laughs> um, so I also rewatched Chicken Run and I feel like it's one of those films you see as a kid and you kind of just enjoy it for what it is. And then as you get older, you realize that it kind of has a commentary about capitalism that you didn't quite realize was there. And it's a film that no matter what people's political persuasion is, you can just put it on and they seem to enjoy it. And the last film I think I want to mention is this film Airplane. It's an 80s comedy and I'd never even heard of it um but I saw it like on it might have been Netflix and I just uh, put it on for something to see but it was the most ridiculous over-the-top comedy about people on a plane and uh I think you just kind of have to see it to understand what it is but it's very very over the top and just so daft but it kind of has a charm to it airplanes are classic yeah <laughs> lloyd bridges running joke of took the wrong day to quit smoking is one of the funniest things and then he jumps out the window it's well, yeah <laughs> abrams and zucker movies and tv series are always great um police squad is one of my faves yeah i know that you love naked gun dom oh yeah naked gun is probably my favorite comedy maybe <laughs> Well, there you go. I mean, those are the movies that we've seen over the Christmas period. But if we were going to make lists here right now of the best movies that we've seen in 2021, what would they be? Um, I'll start off very quickly. I only saw about five movies this year um, because I, I like watching old films. That's kind of my thing. But um, the five films I watched were like Last Night in Soho, which is not very good. Sorry, Edgar Wright. I like you otherwise, but I, you, you stumbled a bit on that one. Um, much as I like you. Um, otherwise, I thought the other ones I saw were all good. Uh, French Dispatch is decent, really good Wes Anderson movie. But the best ones of the year, easily for me, are The Last Jewel, and I've already talked about it, um, The Card Counter. I think both of those are absolutely fantastic. The Last Jewel is a feminist, revisionist, medieval epic that made no money, unfortunately. Um, but it's exactly the kind of movie that should make money because it's fantastic. Very little CG, mostly practical effects. It's absolutely fantastic. And The Card Counter is a brilliant Brasonian low-key thriller. Paul Schrader just firing on all cylinders. It's all character-driven. It's all character-focused. It feels very 70s. 
it's again just like first reformed it's incredibly political it's a movie that really 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 takes the george w bush presidency to task for its human rights abuses and bizarrely barack obama decided it was one of his favorite movies of the year i'm not sure if he fell asleep during it or something but there you go so for me the card counter in the last jewel best movies of the year what do you think dom um yeah love those two definitely in my top five um cry macho i i loved clint eastwood maybe his last film i hope not but if it is great farewell malignant i thought was a wonderful film um nice little self-aware kind of horror riff and then kung fu happens in the third act which you know every movie needs kung fu i would add um old love that old was, was terrific the thing m night does with the camera in there is you know just there's some great shots in that um but matrix resurrections as well um but number one would have to be a film that when i heard it was announced when i heard this filmmaker was doing it i was like why on earth is he doing it and the reason spielberg did west side story is because he knew he could do it better and he did it's a film that i spent half of it crying during um the opening shot just perfectly sets up the fact that you're in the hands of a master um it perfectly it's a long crane shot of these slums being demolished and the dusty rubble and that perfectly sets the scene of the social issues the political issues and the environment that the film will take place in um and yeah Spielberg's blocking is unmatched it's the film he was probably born to make I feel um these films have a musicality to them anyway in terms of their their blocking and their compositions and the way he moves the camera and the, the, the beats of, of specific shots, the structure of them. And it, it perfectly suits West Side Story. Um, every time he holds a wide, I'm just bowing down to the screen. Um, the way he improves in the musical numbers and um, the sequence America, which, you know, is probably, I think maybe people's favorite song from, from the musical. Um, it's definitely probably my favorite song. But the way that as the song goes on, the musical number expands, we go out onto the streets and more people join in the, on the number the kind of actions, the dancing gets bigger. Um, the film gets more vivid as the melting part of America is revealed in the sequence. It gets more colorful and bigger. It, it's, it's truly remarkable. Um, the scene where Tony meets Maria for the first time is pure magic. I started crying the minute it happened. I don't know how he did it. I mean, I know how he did it, but I don't know how he did it. The way he makes Maria seem like the most important person in the world, even though we're in the middle of this huge spectacle of dance. Um, and yet that all fades into the background. We've just spent 10 minutes watching this dance number and it continues and yet it somehow fades away until we only see Maria. It's magic and I cried. And then for the next hour, I cried until Rita Marino sang somewhere, at which point I could just feel like water building up in my mask. I, I, my heart was, was broken. I was, my heart was shattered during it. The call sequence, a song that I don't think anyone really ever discusses from the musical, here is like the standout number. The way Spielberg, again, the use of a gun, and he, he's changed it so that Tony sings it to the character of Riff now, and it revolves around this gun. The way the gun is the center of this piece, it's it's one of the greatest pieces of spectacle I think I've seen all year. Um, and people, seeing people wonder why West Side Story isn't being seen, and even though the, the big screen demands it, you know, the, the use of spectacle is, is terrific. And the ending when it's set amongst the rubble, um, that set up in the very first shot, it's just, I, I can't do it justice with words. I think it's terrific and the best one of the year. 
and better than the original. And the original is a film I absolutely adore. The West Side Story is a classic for a reason, and yet somehow Spielberg managed to improve on it. Um, and Rachel Zegler is Maria. It's her first film, and she's an absolute star, and should have her own. She should be the next biggest thing um, because she is absolutely wonderful in it. Um, yeah, West Side Story. I've seen it twice now, and I want to see it again. It's 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 really good. <laughs> If you told me at the beginning of the year that you were going to put that above a Clint Eastwood movie, um, I wouldn't have believed you. So that yeah. is really quite something coming from you. Almost, what were your favourite movies of the year? Um, I have to be honest, a lot of the new releases this year did let me down because I think uh, I was kind of desperate to get back into cinema and see whatever was out. I just bought a ticket for whatever. But so many let me down. The French Dispatch, I was not a fan of. I really didn't like Last Night in Soho and I thought I would love it. Um, however, some films that did surprise me, Free Guy, I watched it because of Jodie Comer. I enjoyed it. It was really, you know, entertaining. Um, it made me feel happy. I can't complain. Uh, surprisingly, I really loved The Suicide Squad. Um, I hadn't seen the first one because everyone told me, don't even waste your time with it. But this film I thought was entertaining and they seem to give, especially Harley Quinn, uh, a more fuller character, a more fuller role. Because I think in the first film, from what I've heard, she's just kind of sexualized a lot and isn't really given uh, the, the time she deserves or the kind of respect that she deserves. Um, I cried like a baby in No Time to Die, um, <laughs> I have to admit. I left the cinema in tears and I don't know if that's just me being soft, but that was fairly entertaining, a bit confused, uh, but it got me emotionally. House of Gucci was very odd with its uh, tone, but I really enjoyed uh, Lady Gaga and Adam Driver and also Al Pacino is just a natural in everything he does. But for me, a uh, surprise film was The Last Duel because I think House of Gucci, they were both just uh, directed by Ridley Scott, uh, received much more, you know, uh, advertising, received more attention. And I think Last Year was better. I think Jodie Comer is just amazing. And I'm so glad that she's kind of being recognized because I've seen her on like British TV for the last a decade maybe and now she's becoming this huge star which she definitely deserves and um, uh, especially because I think I mentioned before but Thelma and Louise is one of my favorite films and this film I hadn't seen any trailer I think I'd seen a poster so I assumed okay it's going to be this medieval film lots of violence lots of action but it actually is a story much like Thelma and Louise about a woman's experiences uh, and uh, that how they handle, you know, sexual assault. And I think it did it well because we still see that character as a woman of her time and the way she handles certain situations, but uh, she stands up for herself and she receives a form of justice, I think. And I just enjoyed it a lot. Although the accents that... Um, were in it by I think I can't remember his name now is it Matt Damon yeah <laughs> it is Matt Damon isn't it 
yeah, he kind of does an American yieldy accent. <laughs> so it was a bit distracting, in my opinion. But um, I think the last duel stood out to me a lot. Brilliant. I mean, um, I forgot to mention No Time to Die. Just when you said it, then I was like, oh, yeah, that came out this year. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was it like the plot is pretty silly, to be fair. But, you know, give Daniel Craig a machine gun and I'll probably give it a four on Letterboxd. So I enjoyed it. And when it comes to The Last Jewel, I was so pleasantly surprised by that film because like it really Scott doing a big epic. I'm like, it's going to be like Gladiator where it's a bit over the top and like, it's fine, but I don't get too much out of it. The Last Jewel is so brutal. It's one of the most brutal movies to have come out in the last few years, I think, to have been like a popular release film, not some obscure horror movie or something. The final, well, The Last Jewel, um, at the right at the end of the movie, my heart was in my mouth the entire time. There are about three mo moments in that where I was almost passing out <laughs> in my chair. I mean, there's a scene in that where someone gets non-fatally stabbed and it's one of the most brutal, like I could hear people next to me gasping when I was seeing it. Fantastic movie. I can't recommend it enough. It's a real shame it didn't make money. But there you go. I mean, yeah, this year has given us some really good movies. So something to be thankful for at Christmas time. I think we've come to the end of this episode, but before we end, as always, I'll ask Olmaz, Dom, do you have anything you want to plug, any social media, anything you're working on? If you fancy following my letterbox, it's Almaz Rosano. I just log the films that I've seen and sometimes add a review. Um, and you'll see that I have a soft spot for kind of naff rom-coms <laughs> or teen flicks that I think are brushed aside. Um, and I think that's all I have to say. <laughs> what about you, Dom? Uh, yeah, you can uh, follow me on letterbox for more hot takes um bingo of ginger and then on twitter i'm dom of ginger um dom wasn't available on letterbox that's why i had to use a different name but yeah that's my two bits look out for my matrix review in the paper uh, the physical paper in january and it should be online around the same time um it's a really good film go watch the matrix resurrections don't pay attention to people <laughs> Fantastic. As always, I'm Frank Evans. I'm the editor of the Boar film section. Uh, if you want to see anything I'm doing uh, in early January, a piece I've written about Paul Schrader, masculinity and loneliness will be going online. I, I love Paul Schrader and I think his films are really quite powerful in terms of the alternative model of masculinity he provides. So I wanted to write something about it. Please do pick up the January copy of the paper, which should be coming out towards the end of the month. And good luck with um, the new year. I hope everything goes well for you. And I hope everything goes well for you um, in your studies at work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. Make sure to like us on Facebook and stay alert to our updates on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye and happy new year. <laughs>